This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. Before we begin today's episode, I want to advise caution. Today's conversation includes discussion about loss of life and foster care and could be triggering to some listeners. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with Deborah Murky to discuss the story behind her memoir, Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace. Deborah and her husband served as foster parents for a number of children, but Deborah became especially close to one little girl. Through a series of difficult and horrific circumstances, she found herself taking a phone call from the birth mother from prison. What developed is the story Deborah tells today. It truly is a story of the miraculous grace of God and the steps of obedience that were far from easy. After listening to today's episode, will you do me a favor? Hit the share button on the app where you're currently listening and either send it to a friend or share it on social media. Tag Grace Enough Podcast so I can say thank you. As a podcaster, sharing an episode is the best compliment you can give the show. Thanks again. It means the world to me that you take the time to listen week in and week out. Good morning, Deborah, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Good morning, and it is really exciting to be here with you. It is because... I read your book like recently, even though I came out in 2019, but anybody who is listening knows that one of my favorite t-shirts that I wear is actually, it says, uh, let's talk about theology and true crime. And while that does not completely apply to your story in the truest sense of the phrase, it actually does. And so your story is all about just that, the grace of God colliding with tragedy. And so as we get started, I like to set the stage by having my guests share how they first came to know Christ, just a little bit about their early faith walk with Jesus. I grew up what I call a, a, a dysfunctional church-going family. Me too. <laughs> There's probably many of us, probably all of us really in a sense, but uh, so I was the youngest of four girls, you know, I have three older sisters and, you know, my family went to church off and on, but, um, but you know, I, there wasn't really a demonstration of faith in our home, even though my father prayed at the dinner table, but other than that, there, there really wasn't. And so my oldest sister, uh, I was born and raised in California. So my oldest sister was invited by a friend to go to a Billy Graham crusade at the Hollywood bowl. And after that experience, she, she had received the Lord. So she tried to minister to the rest of us younger siblings, but um, we would do lovely things like call her a Jesus freak and, you know, those oh, kinds yes. of yeah. So as we got older, she kept trying to really minister. Um, and she pretty much is the one that raised me. My mm-hmm. parents worked a lot. So she and I were very close. But, you know, I just, I, I was going to do life on my own. You know, mm-hmm. I could do this yeah. by myself. Right. So it really wasn't until I w- was married, had ch- a couple children at that point. And I really realized I'm just repeating the dysfunctional church going family and that, you know, and that I wasn't doing well. 
And so I was so frustrated because I thought, well, I can really handle life on my own until I went to this little church in our community. And the pastor was talking in Deuteronomy about the sins of the parents. Mm. And it was one of those times where I just knew, well, now I know it was the Holy Spirit said, listen, you know, and all this time I thought, well, whatever I had done in the past, I was lived very much in the world and was really very worldly. And I thought that, that just had to do with me, you know, and then I realized, oh my goodness, I started to evaluate some of the things of my parents. I was continuing on yep. and that I looked at my own children sitting there next to me in these little pews and said, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing. And so I went home. I was so convicted. I went home, got my children lunch. My husband was working. I went upstairs, closed my bedroom door and laid flat on the floor on my face, mm. which was funny because I wanted to be as humble and as just lowly as I could before the Lord, even though my bedroom was on a second story. Yes. <laughs> but I thought, is this, is this low enough? But I just said, that's it. I am done with my life. And um, it's yours now, Lord. Mm. And as soon as I came up off of that floor and sat on the edge of my bed, it was like the Lord gave me this thought of like, I am going to just start asking forgiveness and forgive, you know, wherever given the opportunity. And looking back, I'm thinking, I wouldn't have thought of the word opportunity that mm. had to have been from the Lord. And I thought it was going to be a temporary thing, you know, as far as this forgiveness issue. And then I realized he called me into the ministry of forgiveness and redemption and that it was going wow. to be my lifelong ministry. So that is my conversion story. Well, and I mean, what a story of forgiveness that you really have to share. I mean, we all do, but I mean, I, I definitely believe our experiences, God gives us different ones to speak <laughs> into different aspects of his character. And so you and your husband fostered high-risk high youth for 18 years. Mm -hmm. Take us back to when you began that journey. What kind of led you to fostering children? Um, just kind of what was going through your mind, your husband's mind, and the mind even of your children uh, when you all first started fostering. Well, my husband and I had just moved from uh, Houston, Texas to Casper, Wyoming, and it was in November and it was cold and snowy and we we're moving into, you know, the, the winter, uh, which is a very different experience, of course, for us. And it was a snowy day and, and we were in the evening um, watching television. I had just given birth to our, our third child and um, probably a few weeks prior. And we saw a commercial that just said in our community, there was a great need for foster parenting. And in my younger years, I volunteered at like teen homes for girls and things like that. You know, I just, okay. I was sort of called into that direction and I love to help and mentor other people and, but never really thought of it as fostering. So my husband and I looked at each other and said, you know, this is something that we could do. We don't have a lot of money or, uh, or all that, but that we, we believe that we have a lot of love mm -hmm. and that, uh, and we were not Christians at the time, which was interesting. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So it's actually two years prior to being Christians. Uh, and so we agreed that we would fill out the application, do, you know, jump through the hoops, do what we had to do in the court classes and talk to our older kids. And, and everybody was really quite excited about it, but it was a whole new concept to us. So we mm -hmm. made a lot of mistakes in those first years and we, we learned a lot and a lot of things the hard way, but um, so there was good and, and, and bad situations, you know, in it. But the thing was, is that we just, we got our first little child, a little boy and it was a good experience. So we thought, you know, we could do this. We can care for other children and love them. But because we were not Christians at the time, my husband and I both thought that we were going to be able to be the savior in these children's mm -hmm. lives. 
and that um, you know we were going to save them out of tragic situations of neglect or abuse. And so then it it wasn't until of course a couple of years later when we both had received Christ that we realized, oh, we're not the savior. <laughs> Jesus is, you know, and he is going, we needed to lead them to him as well. Well, I appreciate that you say that because I mean, I know some people who even are Christians who at times start fostering and struggle with that mindset as well, that if I do this, that means they're going to be saved from X, Y, and Z. And so right. it really is a rooted identity in Christ that we even have to have before we start doing. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you in part by HarperCollins Focus, publisher of some of your favorite audiobooks and authors like country music superstar Reba McIntyre, Zachary Levi, Joanna Gaines, Luke Russert, Willie Nelson, and so many more. In honor of June being Audiobook Appreciation Month, explore all these authors, current deals, new releases, and more at harpercollinsfocus.com slash audiobooks. So in, in your memoir that you released in 2019, which is Mur Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace, you share portions of your journey with one particular little girl and her mother and just all the nuances and, and all the things that happen in your relationship and so on. Will you share that story with us? Well, as foster parents and, and for many years, the one thing with, with our, the children that we had, we realized they were going to go probably back into the homes that they came out of. Mm -hmm. And that, that's one reason why it was so important for us to, to really minister to them, Jesus Christ, so that they could take him back into the home with them in a sense and have, you know, a, a, a sense of him and, and experience him. And so this particular family, we had moved to a home on 10 acres right outside of our town so that we could actually foster families of children, not just, you know, mm -hmm. a few at a time. At the time, we were fostering a family of five, and one of the little girls in it, um, Hannah, who was four at the time, uh, we could tell pretty soon on that she was sort of the targeted child in this family of mother's abuse. And not only mother's abuse, but mom's boyfriend's abuse as well. Mm. And mom had a number of children and, you know, not all of the same dad. And she had not been married. And so there was no commitment, you know, the dad. And so when this little girl would go home to visit and whatever, she was scared to death um, because of mother's abuse that would come out on her. And then again, uh, abuse from boyfriends that she had. So we had the children for a year. And uh, my husband and I just grew very, very fond of this particular one. And she drew very close to us. And so I approached the mother a few times and said, you know, as they're trying to work the children home to you. I could just tell that you just really don't care for this child. You mm -hmm. know, that you really just have something against her. And she kind of admitted while she was from a, one of the dads that, you know, it just wasn't a desirable situation. And I said, you know, if it would help you out, which we had never done this before, but I said, if it would help you out, we'd be happy to, you know, keep her and maybe do a temporary guardianship till you can get on your feet with the other kids and, yeah. and do all that. We tried to do whatever we could do to help her. And she just said, no, you know, nope, this is hers. And that was the one thing is there's sometimes people look at their children really as their property and they just don't want you to anybody else to have any control over their property. So she kept saying no. And at the end of almost a year, the caseworker and I sat down with the birth mom and we just said, tried to work a plan yeah. to bring the children home over six months. And within a few weeks, suddenly 
we never really understood why, but the judge ordered all the children home that day at, at the same time. And we couldn't work, really work that plan. And so I was scared to death for this child. And the child was scared to death. She was just, it was a horrible situation for both of us. Yeah. I had to legally take her home. I wanted to take off with her, but I had children of my own. You know, I, That's right. You didn't, you didn't want to end up in jail. Exactly. And I had to take her home. So I, I kept trying to check on the family afterwards, maybe bring a birthday gift or a meal or something to stay connected. And I would never see her. I, I would see the other kids, but mom always had an excuse that she was either at a birthday party or visiting somebody. And I just had a good feeling something was really wrong. And I kept calling social services and saying, you know, I think you need to check on this. And of course there, you know, we're saying, well, oh, we're keeping an eye on it. You just kind of take care of the other children we send you, you know, don't, this isn't your problem. We're, we're, we're watching for her. So it was almost a year later when we uh, got a phone call and uh, they had found her body in, in the garage. And so, and they, they had determined she had been there probably close to the year. Oh my gosh. It was horrible. It was really horrible. Well, and I mean, there's so many questions I could ask there, but I want to ask this because I know that social services and, and the court system are so overrun with things, but I also know you've had decades to think through, like, what are things that can be done that are a little bit sure. better so that things like this do not happen? Well, you know, one of the things they did, they realized that they had stopped doing was having a picture of each child in each file. And so when the caseworkers would say, well, no, we're sending people over there to do checkups, you know, and they're seeing the child there. And I just, I knew this mom well enough and she's very manipulative and I said I wouldn't doubt that she is replacing you know her, oh. her kids that aren't there with maybe a neighbor child somebody else and if the caseworker does not know the family they're not going to know that I start when I went over now I'm looking back the mom had pictures of all the kids in the living room for the first few weeks and then when I'd start to go go back none of the pictures were up uh, so thinking back you know I'm, I'm realizing she took the pictures down so when they have a new caseworker that would step in to go do a checkup on them, they did not have pictures of all the children. And so um, that was one thing that they realized they were really slacking in and that they said they, they have to have a picture of every file and any caseworkers that are doing, you know, home checks. Right. Well, really checks. need to look at those files and look at those children and make sure. So that was one of the things that they did. But the other thing is that Social services can, can check on and do home checks and check on families, but they can't live with these people 24 seven. That's right. And so that doesn't mean it, I guess the issue everyone had really with social services wasn't that they had failed to keep this mother from taking this child's life. But what the failure was, was that it was almost a year later before they knew it. That's what the failure was. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's hard, honestly, to wrap your mind around and I'm assuming that's probably what you and your family experienced as well. And so exactly. before we talk a little bit about what happened after that, I would like to know, because at this point, your children, your biological children mm -hmm. are of age to understand. And so sure. do you remember really at that time, what the impact was on your own biological children and just your family as a whole? Uh, our two oldest ones that were already out of the home, one was in the service and the other one was at college. So they were not around to really know the child much or build a relationship. Mm. But the ones that were home, we had three, three still at home at that time. And <clears throat> they were junior high, high school and elementary. So they definitely were oh, yeah. an age to understand. 
And the one daughter uh, was actually staying the night at her friend's house the night we found out. So when I had to go out and announce it to my husband and my other children, we just all hugged each other in the middle of the living room. And we literally went to our knees together, hugging each other and just broke down and cried and cried. We just couldn't believe it. Um, I knew something was wrong, but it, it, you know that was just the worst you know scenario that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And so I called my uh, a daughter that stayed at a friend's and said, I need to tell you something, but I'm going to come to you and tell you. I didn't want to tell her on the phone. Yeah. So I drove across town and um, it was pouring rain. And she and her little friend actually came out to the car and I told her. And her friend knew this child as well. So um, they were brought junior high age then. And we just all cried. They were just devastated. Oh, my goodness. Well, and that's the thing. You have this horrific loss led to a, a range of emotions, right? From anger to sadness to fear to all the things. But you had to make a choice when you received a phone call from jail. Share that experience. And oh my, just share the experience. I don't even know how really to formulate a question. Sure. Yeah. I was then and still am a lay chaplain for our jail, our local jail. So you already were. I was then. Yes. Okay. And so I was a lay chaplain. So um, we found this out at about 530 at night, the news and the caseworker called us to tell us because she said she knew it was going to come out in the news when they found the child's body. And she wanted to tell us personally and give us a heads up. And so we were so devastated that whole night. And then the next morning, um, when the family was still all asleep and I was getting up, going down to make coffee, you know, in the kitchen, the phone rang. Uh-huh. And we had one of those old, ugly, yellow wall phones that oh, yes. some of the younger people don't even know what that is. Anymore. With the five foot cord, right? Actually, that you could- <laughs> yes, you could go anywhere in the house. It went That's everywhere. Right. So the phone rang and I, of course, grabbed the phone right away. So it didn't wake up family. And the first thing that came across the phone was the recording that I knew and it was very familiar with, with the jail. And it's a recording saying, you know, that you have a a call from an inmate. Will you accept the call? And I, so I knew who it was. You did. And I thought, I mean, I just knew that that's who it had to be. And I just remember just this fire going through me. Just, Mm -hmm. I almost wanted to come through the phone at her. You know, I was just Mm -hmm. angry. We're so angry and hurt and just devastated. And, and so when she said the name that it was her, you know, my first reaction is, why is she calling me? Mm-hmm. She knew that we loved this child. Why would she call me? And also had lied, you know, for the whole year. Oh and um, so my first reaction just was anger. And I was just, and I, I started to hang up the phone and it was like between my ear and the, the wall of where the phone was. I just knew it was the Holy spirit that just said, if she called Jesus, would he take her call? You know, it's one of those times you want to go, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> really? Well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> That's right. And I, and I just, you know, I felt like the Lord was saying, you profess to be the hands and mouthpiece and feet of, of Christ. You are, mm-hmm. you know, need to be his light on, on the earth. And so what are you going to do? And I just knew I could not hang up that phone. So I took her call and she had asked me if I would come and see her. I was just shocked, you know, that she would call me and then ask me to come visit her at the jail. I, th- I said, I would have to think about it. And so we hung up and family's waking up and everything's happening and all that. And I thought, oh, how do I even tell my husband this or my kids? And I, because if, if I said I was just going to the jail, that wouldn't have been un- unusual. Uncommon, right. Because I had gone, you know, for different reasons before. 
but they would have known. So I needed to share that with my husband. And he at first just was like, no, no way. Yeah. You're going. yeah. So then you get there, you show up. Is it that night that she asks you to take a child that she is currently pregnant with? It was not that evening. No. Um, in fact, the thing was that really the first, first or second visit that I went to visit her, she, she said, there's no forgiveness for what she, mm. she had done. And I said, who, who is it you want forgiveness from? And she said, God. And I, that's oh. when I asked her if she had had a relationship with God and if she knew Christ. And she said, no. And so that was another one of those, really? Because I could sense that the Lord was saying that I needed to ask her if she wanted to receive Christ. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, that's, you know, as a Christian, that's one of our greatest blessings to lead someone to the Lord. But to be honest with you, I didn't want to lead her to the Lord. You know, I yeah. totally understand that. Yeah, at that point, I'm like, I am not doing this because I have this passion for, to lead her to the Lord. That's right. But when she said, yes, she wanted to receive the Lord. I mean, that was out of obedience on my part, but I had did not have a good attitude at all toward that because I'm thinking she doesn't deserve, you know, but then in truth, who of us do. So, so I knew I just needed to do that, but no, it was when they trans started transporting her to the prison after so many hearings, you know, locally, then they would take her to the prison. And, um, it was one of the visits that I visited her at the prison, which is about two hours from our house was when she said, she had told me at the beginning that she actually went to jail. They picked her up that night. She was five months pregnant with her eighth child. Mm. Yeah. So she went to jail and to prison at that point, right early on five months pregnant with that child. Mm -hmm. Well, and you guys, I I guess I want to ask too, like, did you see a repentant heart in her? And and it doesn't matter because we're not the ones to judge. Absolutely. I'm just curious. I don't know if you want to say a repentant heart. I think what I saw was a tiredness, you know, what I, I guess what I mean by that is that to the rest of us, it was a shock. It was less than 24 hours that we had this news, but she had been carrying that for a year, knowing the truth, what she had done. And I believe that what it was, what I sensed from her was just that weariness, that heaviness. It was that burden that had weighed on her knowing this, the secret she had to keep. And she kept this child's body in the garage of her home where she's still going on and living life with her other children. And so that was a, you know, 24 seven remind her, you know, of what she had done and the loss of this child. And so what I really sensed from her was just a giving up, you know, that of just, I am tired, almost maybe a relief that she was found found out. Yeah. And so I don't know that it was repentance at that point. I did see it later on though. Well, yeah, because you maintained a relationship with her and you did end up adopting that child. Um, and so before we get into that though, I I'm just curious, cause it sounds like you were involved in prison ministry already, but you were the chaplain, but did your involvement in prison ministry change as a result of this experience? Is this kind of what led you into engaging in more one-on-one relationships? Uh, what was that process like? Well, what's of course in the, uh, jail or prison ministry, you know, type of thing. And I was, I, I was a speaker at the women's prison a couple of times a year for about five years. So I was involved there. Um, I wasn't really visiting individual women there. I was there going as a speaker and with a a group, you know, as ministering, but I was a lay chaplain for our local jail. So that I would go back and forth. Some of those women would, you know, be in jail for maybe a year. So 
to a degree, I'd build a little bit of a relationship. But again, it's a short visit, you know, a jail visit. And outside of that, there really wasn't relationship. The difference with this one was I had started a relationship with this mom because I was a foster mom and she was willing to allow me into her life to support her. And so we built a little bit of a relationship there before she went into jail. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of reversed in that part. But the one thing that I did have to decide was the women's prison said I had to make a choice if I was going to either come in again and speak, you know, as a speaker, or if I, if there was a prisoner that I was going to visit on a regular basis, I couldn't do both. Okay. And so I had to make a decision to let go of being a speaker if I was going to go into the prison visiting her personally one-on-one. So that was part of the thing that changed as far as, as what I was doing as far as ministry. Yeah. And as God continued to basically draw you into places that I know were not easy to walk in, right. um, how did you see him really meet you and maybe some of your fears and some of your anger, your frustration as you continued to walk with Hannah's mom? I really think there's, there's so much I learned about obedience, you know, um, even when I look back at that story and, and that, um, and even today too, I have, I probably learned more about obedience and what God can do through our obedience. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's really what it's all about. He, you know, when he calls us to do something or to not do something, it's through our obedience that it's like his power is released. And I think that that was a real wake up call for me to, to, to see that played out. And it started really with that first evening when I went to the jail to which she asked me to come and visit her. And I, my husband said that I, he would go ahead and say, go, my children are very angry at me, but my husband said I could go, but all the way to the jail, I had to stop. I was sobbing. I thought I was going to throw up. Mm-hmm. I was a mess when I got to the, the jail, you know, but then when I got to the door, the security door, just before she was going to come, God gave me this total peace. He dried my eyes. He gave me a calm spirit. I just was like totally at peace when I was sitting there talking to her. And I found that he did that every time that I would go to see her, he would just give me this, just an incredible kind of peace and calmness about me. And I believe part of it really was, was because he wanted to speak to her through me. And if I was an emotional wreck, you know, um, I would have been the one that was coming through, not him. Mm. So he started showing me really in, obedience that if I just say, Lord, I will follow through, I will go visit her. I'll continue a relationship. And I was the only one that would support her. In fact, I had other people then starting to come down on me. Right. Yeah. And so you did adopt her baby, which is now your baby. It's a daughter, correct? Yes. Have you continued a relationship with Hannah's mother up to this point? And then you know, how, I don't know, what is your family dynamic now? Because your kids are grown. Correct. Well, you know, the thing, just even going back to the baby is when I went to visit her at the prison and uh, she asked if my husband and I would take guardianship over the baby when it was born is what she initially said. She did not want social services to have the baby in the system. So my husband and I talked and, and I prayed about that and said, came back because my husband said, she's going to be in, in prison for life. But at that point, they didn't even know if if she was going to get the death penalty or mm. life in prison. So, you know, he just said, we can't be guardianship over a child. that's never going to have a relationship with this mother. You know, you can't, you right. know, it's got to be an adoption. Yeah. So we said it would be adoption. And so she agreed to that. And we got one attorney so that we would all be on the same page and, and just make sure everything was, you know, understood. 
So, you know, we did when this baby was born, uh, they did bring her to Casper because it was a cesarean. And and my lieutenant at the jail um, gave me permission to be at that birth. So I was able to be the birth. And then social services started to then take us to court to fight us on being able to adopt this baby. And I still believe back that was just their lawyer trying to save fates. You know, I mean, obviously the community was very upset at social services. Right. You know, that they failed. So our children were happy that we were in one sense adopting her. In the other sense, it was tough because they were so angry and bitter at this mother. And mm-hmm. they then they felt like that uh, by adopting this baby, it would be a constant reminder, you know, to our mm-hmm. own family. So anyway, we have, we did adopt her. Uh, our younger kids are closer to her because they come, you know, were part of raising her with us. And, you know, today it's amazing. She's grown, she's married and has two children and we have an extremely close relationship. She, uh, she and I talk or text like 10 times a day. It's, it's right. almost crazy. We're very, very close. Uh, did you adopt some other children as well? Or are all of your children biological except for the one? Correct. They're all biological except one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just an incredible story too, because I think about how they mirror one another in the sense of your kids were a little bit fearful that it was always going to be a reminder. And then it seemed like Hannah was the one that was constantly singled out in her family. And so the way that it lived out in your family is no, she wasn't a constant reminder. We Mm -hmm. took her in and we showed her love just like we would any other child. Yes. And so what about your relationship with the birth mother now? Do you have contact with her now? Yes. In fact, all the time we, which is interesting, we literally built a relationship through that situation. And she and I have just a great love for each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of times people don't understand that, but you know, she's a sister in Christ. And I had the privilege of seeing her grow and change. When she, after she received the Lord and went to prison and was sentenced, um, I started sending in Bible studies. I, I had a Bible with her name engraved on it and gave it to her. Wow. In prison and then, and she still has that and sent her Bible studies and Christian books. And when I'd write to her back then, we would just write all the time mm-hmm. and I would share the Lord with her in scriptures. And then when I could, I would visit her once a year at the prison. And so we spent a lot of time crying and talking, but we pray, always pray together. And I had the privilege of seeing her grow in the Lord. And then she joined Bible studies at the prison as well. You know, and she had to go through a, a serious shunning because, of course, there's other inmates that if you hurt your, ch- you know, your children, that you are the worst of the worst. And so okay. she went through a lot of years of that. And so she, it, her Christianity didn't really play out in those first probably five or six years. She was always getting in fights, having to be put in lockdown, being isolated because, you know, she still was acting out in her flesh. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about that. But through the years, we talked and we talked and we talked about forgiveness. And, you know, the thing that was so amazing was it took almost 14 years into her sentencing before we had a conversation. She never even mentioned the child's name and, and either did I. We never talked about it, which was kind of difficult in a prison situation to talk about the case. So we really didn't, and we never did. But then finally, you know, years later, she said that she had asked God to forgive her and she, she knew that he forgave her and that she had asked Hannah to as well. And she believed that, you know, that Hannah has forgiven her. And then she said, but there's one person I haven't asked. And I said, who is that? And she said, you, you. Uh, yeah. 
So wow, that was pretty amazing. And I yeah. said, I said, I already have, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but that took years. That was definitely not, but there's so many people in our community. That's one reason why I felt led to write the book too, in our community and people in our life that they're still stuck back of when mm-hmm. it happened. And so I have even some of my own children still hate this birth mom and they do not understand. I have one daughter very upset with me that I wrote the book mm. because she said, well, I don't think there's forgiveness for her, you know, and that they have to work out themselves. That's right. It's so true. I mean, and I would like to sit here and say as a follower of Jesus that I wouldn't be in your daughter's shoes, but I don't think any of us know that. Cause like you said, it's a working out of our faith and our trust. And you just sometimes don't know how that's going to manifest itself until you're the one walking the path. Yes. Well, you talk about obedience and it's not always an easy choice to obey the Lord. And so I guess I'd love to know just some ways that you, you know, you felt like he sustained you as you obeyed. I know you said the overwhelming peace that you would experience uh, when you would walk in? Is there anything else that comes to mind about, okay, I can obey again because I've seen the Lord do this? Well, walking through all that with her was challenging enough. And then with family and, yeah, um, and then also I had uh, social services in our community to deal with as well, because we were still foster parents. That's what I was going to say. Did you still have foster kids at home this whole time? Yes. Girl, the Lord has given you like a lot of strength. One, one question I have been asked to in the past too, they said, what about my forgiving forgiveness toward social services yeah. since their failure? That was something I needed to work through as well. But part of that obedience that I saw was the people, it wasn't really the people in the case because I had a really close relationship with them, but the, the lawyer representing them because they were sued over this. So the lawyer representing them, um, you know, and I, they were taking me to court or I was going to court because I'm fighting for to get the baby and they're fighting to get the baby. So it was one of the first times we were on the opposite ends of the, you know, the courtroom oh. social services. I'd always been in there with them, you know, and on their side to help with these children. And so now we were on opposite sides and I met with one of the caseworkers who I just love, but she just said, well, you know, you're going to go and visit this mother, whatever. If you stop doing that, then, then maybe social services would support you. And um, that was another step of obedience. I thought, the Lord has called me to this mm. woman to go and to see her, even if I have friends and family members that were upset with me, mm. even with my own children. So one of those things, I think the toughest part of the obedience, other than the initial, you know, going yeah. to see her, was continuing to see her. I wouldn't tell my kids when I was going like for the day, because it was a whole day trip to go to the prison. Right. My husband would know, but my kids would not. I would just let them know I was doing something else. But I think one of the things was really recognizing that when your own children and family members are against what you're doing and for you to still be obedient to the Lord and to choose to do it, even though if you know you're going to come home and you're going to get the silent treatment or, you know, however you're going to be treated and you're thinking our rationale is that these are my children. They should be my first priority. I, you know, I'm not going to go and minister to this woman. I, you know, you know, you can think all of the justification because I had all these people try to justify me. She's a murderer. She killed her child. She's in prison for life. All of these different things. And to be obedient, to be called to something or someone like that. And to do that when you're being either people are turning against you, shunning you, or um, 
you know, telling you that you're, you're crazy or, or whatever, that you, you know, you don't need to be doing this. Yeah. And so here I had social services against me on that. I had some of my friends that are Christians in my mm-hmm. church mm-hmm. and I had my own children that were very, very upset with me. And I thought when God calls you to do something, you do it, you know, and, mm. and that lasted for quite a long time. You know, that wasn't a one-time deal. So it was so really for you, it was just this mindset of like God sustained you through this. I mean, you, it seems like you just had this mental toughness that he provided to you. Like, no, I know this is what I'm called to do. And I just have to keep doing it. I just have to keep doing it. Yes. Because out of that obedience to the part of that, then the, the other side of that obedience is trust. Yeah. Trust that God's in control. He knows what he's doing and it doesn't look like it right now. But that out of my obedience, I have to trust and have the faith that God's doing a work in it and that he's going to work it all out, you know? Well, were there times though, when that was happening that you, you doubted and you did think like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I'm ruining the relationships around me. Oh, often. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. And you would just receive again, that confirmation or that affirmation um, yeah. from the Lord, like, no, you're doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because Every time I'd go to the prison, even to visit her, which I still do now, we couldn't during COVID, but we, mm-hmm. now it's changed. Now they can talk on the phone. So she calls me and we have long conversations. We talk, you know, I always sent her a birthday card, a Christmas card. You know, I mean, we, we communicate. And when I can, I go to the prison in the latter years, I've been able to go two and three times a year. So we, we have one-on-one, you know, but before, and initially those first years, driving there, I would just be so anxious. It's a two hour drive. Mm. And then driving home, the two hours home, all I would do is cry. So, you know, I would go through that every single time. So of course I questioned, you know, I would go, why, you know, why do I keep doing this? This upsets me so much. I have to go home then and explain to my kids or my husband or, and it would really get to me emotionally for days after, you know, I, wow. I would have to go home and take care of my family and sort of fake it. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was very, it was hard. And I questioned a lot. Yeah. I mean, I like to hear that because I think sometimes like I can listen to you and be like, oh my goodness, she's so mentally tough. Like I think I would have given up, you know? And so it helps grow my faith muscles to hear someone like you say, oh no, it's not like God just told me to do it. And Mm -hmm. I just kept doing it without thinking maybe I shouldn't be doing this or you know, that it was an emotional toll and just the practical aspects of how it impacted you and your family, you know, so it's good to hear that. Well, and, you know, even one of the editors of the book, whatever said, well, so at what point did you forgive? And I said, because people are saying, how could you forgive something like that right away? And I said, it wasn't, I didn't Mm -hmm. No, I said, that's why the book says miraculous grace. Mm. It's because God gave me the grace to within 24 hours, turn around and show her grace by going to just visit her. Mm -hmm. forgiveness didn't come for years. It really didn't. But God just said, we can still show grace even before the forgiveness comes, you know? And I learned also in that, that through his grace and us continuing to show grace out of tough situations, he begins to do the work of forgiveness and redemption in us, you know, Mm -hmm. and that maybe grace is the first step. We don't have to forgive right away, but show grace first. Mm -hmm. And, and that will come. But the one thing too, is that my publishing company just about had a fit when I said, because I did not, I mean, I wrote the book um, and I had, of course, great people, you know, helping in editors and all that, but also I was going back and forth and talking with this birth mom. She knew I was writing the book. 
Wow. Um, we talked about it for a couple of years before I ever even did it. So um, I felt a real responsibility to, to keep her informed what was going on. And so before the book went to publication, I told my, my publisher, I said, before we you know, pull the trigger and do that, I want to send the manuscript in to have her read it before. Wow. So I could, because you can't just send all of that in at one time, I had to send it in two chapters at a time because uh, they're just not, the inmates aren't allowed to have, you know, a, a big male. Plus I was protective over it and over her being, you know, in prison to send this story. I mean, I was, didn't want somebody else getting a hold of it either, or then coming down on her more, you know? Mm. So we had this process. I sent two chapters at a time in, and then the, the goal was I was going to go visit her and then she could have it packed up and, and the, the prison would send the whole thing back to me with me. So we did that, but I said, I want to visit with you because I want to know after you read this, is there any place in there that you think that I was wrong and correct, you know, misinformed, didn't understand you, didn't, you know, or something, something. Yeah, that is impressive. So um, when I went back and I asked her and she read it and she said it was so hard to read, you could imagine, because it was about her. Yes. And she said that she looks at it, she looked at it then of like, that was me. She goes, I can't believe I did that, you know, now, especially as a Christian. But she said, no everything in it is correct. There's nothing I would change. And in one sense, it almost made me sad. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the thing, especially as you grow in care and concern for someone, it's hard to see like, yeah, this is like a whole different person. Yeah. This is who you once were, um, not who you currently are. Well, as someone who has fostered and really has been just highly involved in that system for so long, what encouragement do you have, dare I say advice for foster parents? Cause even the foster parents that I know, it's a hard journey. It is a difficult journey. It is. Well, I think, you know, I have so many people ask me that and they want to be foster parents. And they've asked me that, that question too. The very first thing that I would say to them is don't take children older than your own. Keep them kind of in the birth. Order. Yes. So that really that your children then are the positive influence on them. And their influence is not the negative on your own children. We took older kids. We took teenagers at the beginning until we realized this is not good. Uh, they were not a good influence on our children. Uh, they were harmful to our families at times, you know, and there were times when we had to really call caseworkers and say, this is, you know, this child needs to go. So my very first thing is, is that make sure that your kids are older. I mean, even if they're five or six, but that they're, you know, that they're not younger than the children you take in. Right. The other thing, though, that's I think a good thing is, is that if your children are older, um, one thing that I saw with like my kids when they were older than the little ones that came in, I could see that nurturing um, spirit of my kids come out that they they had concern and care for these little ones. Mm -hmm. um, it was emotionally hard on our kids too to know that these children, some of them, were going back the same home that they came out of, uh, you know, of that they came to us totally physically abused and neglected. And you think, how can they send them back home? So emotionally, it's very hard. And especially my son, one of my sons had a very hard time understanding mm -hmm. that of why would they put them back in the same home? So, you know, these are tough. These are tough conversations. You as a parent, especially if you're a Christian parent, explaining to your own children, you know, and that I had to explain to my children was that these children may come to us anywhere. We've had them from overnight to five years. We had one girl that we had her her senior year of high school and we just kept her through college. She wasn't in foster care anymore, but right. 
we loved her and we kept her. She stayed with her family through college. So, I mean, we've had them and we've had really troubled children and we've had out of control children and we've had all kinds of situations. And we've had very sweet children and submissive children that go back into these homes. So trying to explain to your own children that if God is calling us to be a foster family, we aren't their savior, but our job is to introduce them to him. We had children in our home that received Christ and in our home. And so we said, so that we can send them back into their situation or on to their situation. They might go on to a adoptive family or they might go on to other relatives and that they have had, you know, a taste of Jesus Christ and, and his love. So I said, that's what our job is. You know, our job is not to, to save them. We're not the savior and we can't control them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we, my husband and I became Christians two years after that the scriptures again in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, as far as honoring mother and father, I realized that I started praying with these children every night and we would pray for their parents. And I would tell them, you know, you don't have to necessarily accept the abuse or the neglect, but that God says there's a blessing for you by honoring your parents. So Mm -hmm. you can honor their position. And that's what I would teach the children as they came in and out of our home. All you could do is give them some, plant some seeds. And some of them have gone on to be pretty awesome Christian parents. Yeah. And they live in our community and we've seen them. And my, my kids um, all have now grown there. Some of them were resentful of some of the children we had. And, and um, we had to work through that too. Yeah. But all of my kids have, kids have grown up to be wonderful parents themselves and have a real heart for the community of children that are in need. Well, and that was something that I had actually wanted to close with is, do you have a relationship with some of these uh, children who have come in and out of your home? And I mean, were there any other foster? Well, I want to say, I should say birth parents that you were able to foster a relationship with that really ended up being beautiful. There was an amazing situation with uh, a couple of, most of the the parents, the birth parents, they don't want to really have a relationship with you, you know, mm-hmm. the foster mom, because they see us lined up as the policemen and as the caseworkers. And we, we kind of, you know, and it depends a lot. There's, I have to confess and I hate to, but there's, there's a lot of foster parents out there that aren't very good people. Yeah. And they're, they're not good foster parents and they're not good parents. And some of them just aren't very good people. So of course, even foster parents get a bad reputation, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so when you want to be loving and you want to share Christ and you want to show love and affection to these children, and my heart was, I wanted to be a support to these moms because all of these moms are single moms. You know, almost all of them were mm-hmm. single parents trying to struggle. And I wanted to, to build a relationship and a few I did so that when those children went home, they knew I would still be a support there for them. If they were having right. a home, yeah. they could call me and I would either come over or I would talk them off the cliff or I would do whatever I would do to support them. There weren't very many of them that would do that. But some of them, there was one mom that was amazing. And I think that was one of the stories in it too, that I was a director of our crisis pregnancy center at one point, which is called pregnancy resource centers. Now I have to yes. change the title. And I, I knew her, you know, through our church and she ended up pregnant and coming to me and she gave birth to twins. And so years down the road, um, and she brought them into, to, you know, to see me, but down the road, years down the road, I got a call one Sunday after church and social services said, we need to bring some children to you. Can you take them at this family? And it turned out two little boys and these two little twin girls. 
And it wasn't until the next morning I realized those two little twin girls were those two twin babies that from wow. years earlier and that God had brought them into our home. And what was even more amazing was when the caseworker called me, she said, when they picked up the mom, uh, they picked up the mom for drugs. And when the police picked her up, they, the mom said, please make sure my children go to Deborah. And so, you know, when you live in a small community, you know, you either have a right. good relationship with these moms or you don't. And if you have a good one, you can be a real influence in their lives if things right. go get tough, you know, and yeah. so that was a real blessing for me to have these two little girls in my home. Wow. And they both received Christ in our home. They came and asked if they could receive Christ. Oh my goodness. And that's the thing. I mean, it's one saved life matters. It does. And I think sometimes I lose, I can get, um, I can lose focus of that when you're, you know, you're doing work in a very, uh, I mean, it's oversaturated. It's an area we wish wasn't oversaturated, but it is. And right. so it's easy to lose focus on the good that does take place yeah. in the brokenness. Yeah. I have this last question for you and you can choose not to answer it and I don't have to put it in here, but okay. <laughs> well, just because you have worked for a pregnancy resource center, you have fostered I mean, what do you see as the potential impacts of the Roe versus Wade being overturned? That's interesting. And I, I don't mind, you know, answering that I really don't. Right now, the Lord's laid on my heart the last year. I'm in the process and I've just developed a board and a nonprofit. And there's an old historic school not far from here that is burned and damaged. I want to restore it. And I want mm. it to become a transitional home for single moms and children. Wow. So that's my big project now. That's my God-sized dream. And so... Um, I have people helping me and working on this and we're, we're working toward that. And the thing is I've gone and spoken about this, trying to of course get, you know, people to, to support it. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing I have chosen to do, and I started this before the Roe v. Wade, you know, changed. And mm -hmm. also before even the leak came out, I started this um, back in 2020. So it was before that, but when I go out to speak now, I, I kind of lay it out there right at the beginning. This has nothing to do with politics. This has nothing to do, you know, with, you know, how you stand even on the abortion issue or not. Um, what this has to do with is that through the years, I've worked in my community with all these different resources. I've been on different boards. And I said, you know, we have a wonderful country that when we see people struggling with alcohol and drugs or out coming out of prison, or we have foster care, we have all of these programs and resources after people have made wrong decisions or things have happened bad to them. But I said, what I'm seeing now, the one I'm seeing fall through the cracks is the one that hasn't gotten there yet. And I wanna reach that woman yeah. before she suffers those consequences. So I said, so this is not a home for pregnant girls. Some people have said, oh, you want a home for pregnant girls? No, no. this is a home for single moms and their children to get them on independent on their feet and strong. So they're not depending on bad and wrong resources you know, in their community. Uh, that thinks that those are their saviors and that they can be independent moms. But I said, but there will be girls that come to us that we know that will be pregnant, even though that's not what this is all about. And that to, to me, I still support the fact that these are their decisions. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was the, the director of the center, the pregnancy resource center. When I know I, was, I still want to say crisis. I, pregnancy I have to practice. I had years. I was there 10 years. You know, I have to retrain myself. 
But when I, I was there, you know, I would just see that these, these girls would come in and there wasn't really a support. You can say resources, but they still have to want to go out. Most of them are either embarrassed or whatever. So they wanted to choose to make decisions to just hide the whole situation. Mm-hmm. And so there are women that choose abortion mainly because they don't have the, didn't have the support really. I mean, somebody really, they're supporting them all the time to make those positive decisions. They've regretted it. So I did a lot of post-abortion counseling for people. I have an abortion story in my own life personally, uh, way back when, even before the decisions were made. Wow. Um, so I have a heart for the women, just for women, you know, just whatever their decisions are there, that will be their decision and that we are there to love them through it. And that's the bottom line for me. Mm-hmm. So as far as Roe Ro versus Wade, you know, the turn or whatever, it's certainly has caused turmoil in our country. Yep. And the, the only thing I think about is that I get excited when there's turmoil to a degree, it stirs everything up. And somebody told me it was like the stream in the mountain that when, you know, it collects bugs, dead bugs and leaves and all this, and then a, a strong mountain rain comes and beats down on it, stirs up the mud and all that. And then as the rain stops and the water starts, keeps running, you start to see it clear and all of the, wow. all of the particles are washed down, you know, and I thought, so a stirring up, I think God's stirring up our country. And um, I just am excited really to see where we all land. Yeah. But we're going to be challenged. We're all going to be challenged in it. So I think it's very exciting. Well, Deb, no I'm so stand on. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm grateful for that answer because I so much agree with that. Like taking the option to say no away I, or to say yes away mm-hmm. is not really the answer to me, but like mm-hmm. what you said, um, the support, the resources, those kinds of things being available um, is really where we're going to make, I think the most impact, but thank you so much for being here today. I'm grateful for the way that you continue to share uh, your story and live it as well. Well, I appreciate you. And I'm just so glad God's called you into the ministry that you have. Don't forget to hit that share button in the app where you are currently listening. Also, you'll find Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace linked in the show notes. Purchasing from that link gives me a small commission at no cost to you. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time!